Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined for a second time by Dr. Agner Fogg. He's Associate Professor of Computer Science at Technical University of Denmark. Last time we talked about his book, Warlike and Peaceful Societies, and I'm going to leave a link to it down below in the description box. And today we're going to talk about cultural selection slash cultural evolution. So, Dr. Fogg, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Okay, great. So, I mean, uh, let's start with this. So, what is really cultural evolution? And, I mean, of course, I guess that when people coined the term cultural evolution, they were at least to some extent establishing a parallel with biological slash genetic evolution. But uh, are they similar to one another? Are they different? In what ways? Yes, there's a lot of controversy about whether there is, whether cultural evolution is a thing or not. Because there are obvious uh, parallels, but there are also uh, many differences. So sometimes people uh, assume that uh, they are like the same process and they make false conclusions or are led to the, in the wrong way. So, But, you know, biological evolution is about selection. It's the survival of the fittest, as, as uh, people say. And so the selection is the thing that's driving the process in a direction that nobody is, is actually it goes automatically, nobody actually controlling it. And uh, cultural change also involves a lot of uh, selection processes, like uh, the messages we read in the newspaper, they are carefully selected. And uh, this kind of selection has a lot of uh, effects on on the culture and the political climate and so. So there's obviously a lot of selection going on. And sometimes um, there are things that can be explained well by a uh, selection process, like things that are not planned but happen anyway. Uh, they can be explained by selection processes. Uh, like we like to know, we like to think that everything is planned, but sometimes it's not. Things are happening that we didn't didn't expect or didn't plan. And so the uh, the concept of selection actually uh, has a place here that. So uh, that is an important analogy, analogy, because it explains things that are not planned. Mm -hmm. I understand. Uh, I find that you are fond of memetics as a theory for cultural evolution. I mean, there, there are several theories out there. There is memetics, there is uh, cultural, that, that sort of uh, California School of Cultural Evolution coming from people like Richard Boyd uh, and Peter Richardson and Joe Henrik and others and we also have cultural attraction theory by Dan Sperber, Hugo Mercier and others. Uh, but so uh, why do you think that memetics is a good theory to approach cultural evolution? Well, it's a good theory for explaining some things, and it's a very bad theory for other topics. So okay. I'm not saying that 
this is a good theory for everything. But mm -hmm. it can explain certain things that it's very good of. And there are also certain things that where it's uh, out of place. Mm -hmm. Because uh, the theory on mimetics, it is uh, focusing on on culture units that they call memes. So a meme is a unit of culture. It can be an idea, it can be an invention, it can be a message, a news message, it can be a melody, it can be an invention. And so these are selected. And um, so, so uh, this can explain certain things, uh, but it's, uh, it has a limitation because it's that we need a unit that can be selected. And not everything can be uh, explained as unit. So we will, I think later we can talk about other things that does not fit into this theory. But, but it's a nice place to start to, to get an idea of, of what cultural selection is. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, nowadays with the internet and so on, people use a lot the term meme that was coined by Richard Dawkins back in the 70s in his book, The Selfish. Shelf, a selfish gene. Uh, is there any parallel between a meme in memetics, in cultural evolution, and the memes that people use in on the internet? Yes, certainly. Uh, it is the same word, and it, it, it comes from, from Dawkins. That's true. Mm -hmm. And um, so we can say that the theory of memes has become more and more uh, relevant now that there are so many memes uh, circulating on on the internet and people uh, talk about things going going viral like it's a virus and uh, that's also a way of seeing it and economists talk about viral marketing so these are certainly concepts that influence our everyday life and has got into everyday language so i think it's useful to to look at it mm -hmm. Uh, and I mean, I guess that one of the similarities that memetics has to biological evolution is the fact that uh, in biological evolution we have uh, mutation and in memetics we have uh, what we could call innovation. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So this is an analogy, but um, mutations Mutations, they are usually random. They happen for no purpose. That's just an error in the genes. But innovation is sometimes uh, intelligent. It's goal directed towards a specific goal, towards um, solving a particular problem or planning something. Like the innovation of a car, that's something very complex. It needs many, many different components, which could not just uh, occur randomly. There, there has to be some intelligence into putting all these components together and make a functioning car. So that's also why uh, cultural evolution or uh, mimetic evolution, as you may call it, it it's more effe efficient than uh, biological evolution. It's faster because sometimes it's planned and, and uh, goal-directed. And sometimes it's not. Mm -hmm. I understand. So, uh, and what are I mean? What are the things that make 
memes uh, successful. I, I mean, because, for example, in cultural evolutionary theory, let's call it that way, the one that was developed by Boyd and Richardson and others, they have content biases, context biases, frequency-dependent biases. Do we have anything like that in memetics? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, uh, people tend to select or prefer the ideas that they found useful. So if a car is useful, then somebody else will copy the idea and make other cars that are maybe a little different and then it evolves or the idea involves. But also, uh, I think like a story on the, med on the uh, social media, for example, that's also a meme. And um, they are often selected because of our psychology, that they appeal to our psychology. And um, there's a, a writer, Richard, Bo Richard Brody, who wrote a, a book, Virus of the Mind, and he has focused very much on the psychology of why we choose st certain stories and uh, not all stories. And uh, he described that the most effective memes, they are pushing our emotional buttons, like we have buttons for uh, things we pay attention to. And some of the most uh, strongest emotional buttons, it's something like danger. Because danger is important for our survival, so have we, we have evolved to pay attention to danger. And also food, of course, is important. And sex, sex is something that always uh, causes uh, people's attention. And the protection of children, that's also something that has been always been important for our survival and our procreation. So that's also something we pay attention to. And Richard Bode found that the memes that are most uh, spreading most effectively they are the ones that are pushing the most um, emotional buttons. And um, so we are seeing stories uh, circulating on the social media, especially, that are pushing all the emotional buttons. And uh, people don't care very much about whether these stories are true or false, like a lot of false news that people still uh, share on Facebook and things, because it's pushing their emotional buttons. So that's a very important criterion for what is what is an effective meme. Mm -hmm. I understand. What about the application of genetics to understanding the spread of religious ideas? Because this is one of the things that, for example, Dawkins focuses a lot on focuses a lot on, uh, I mean, uh, uh, is there any way that memetics can help us understand that? Uh, yes and no, because some of the people who are studying the memetics, especially the pioneers, they are mostly biologists and geneticists, and uh, they uh, took the very, focused very much on the analogy, analogy with uh, genes and genetics. And so they made a complicated mathematical equations for how a meme can spread. And uh, these uh, mathematical equations, they looked nice, but just this problem that they didn't have any real world examples that fit their, that fit their models. So uh, 
many people rejected this theory and or, or found it uh, just theory and not very useful because they focused too much on the analogy and less on understanding actually social processes and cultural processes. Mm -hmm. By the way, is the analogy with the virus applied to memes useful to understand how memes work and are transmitted between people? Because, for example, there's a theory of epistemic vigilance that I think was put forth by Hugo Mercier, then Sperber and others. Uh, and basically they say that um, people, people are not completely permeable to all sorts of ideas, that basically they already have a sort of understanding of how the world works, how things go, and they are already part of a particular tribe with particular ideas, let's say a particular group with particular ideas. And so, I mean, they don't accept all kinds of information indiscriminately. So, I mean, the analogy of a virus with the virus, I mean, viruses simply infect people in certain circumstances and they replicate themselves and transmit themselves between people. But so, so to, to what extent is the analogy with the virus useful? I think the analogy with the virus is useful when we are talking about like a lot of fake news are circulating. Um, but people can be immune to virus, you may say, if they uh, it doesn't fit into their worldview. Maybe we can talk about that later. Yeah. But uh, the analogy with a virus, it comes, if you know a biological virus, it's something that it's not a living organism. It cannot copy itself, but it can affect uh, our body mm -hmm. and use our body or our cells to make copies of itself. And we also have a computer virus. A computer virus is not a living thing, but it can affect your infect your computer and use your computer to make copies and spread copies of itself. And so we can say the same with a meme, like a story that's circulating, uh, people pass on the story to others. Um, the analogy is the story is not a living thing. It doesn't have a will, but it has the property that it can penetrate our mind and uh, motivate us to pass on the story to others. So in that effect, it is a, a very good analogy for some uh, in some uh, in some cases, like a, a belief that is spreading. Mm. And uh, again, the uh, the memes that are spreading the most are the ones that are pushing our emotional buttons, like they talk about fear and danger and uh, protecting children and about sex and things like that. So some of the stories that are circulated the most, they are the stories that are pushing our emotional buttons. And it's important to realize that the truth of the story does not enter the equation. The effectiveness of a meme depends on its uh, emotional impact on people. And whether it's true or false, 
has no effect as long as people are not uh, able to fact check. If people have no easy access to a proof or disproof, they may pass on the story and believing it's true, but whether it's true or false, it's not part of the equation. So true, true beliefs and false beliefs can spread easily well, uh, equally well. And uh, if we talk about religion, like uh, Dawkins, for example, did, so in theory, the meme theory can explain why certain religious beliefs are spreading, but it cannot tell whether these beliefs are true or false. Mm -hmm. So we have a theory, it can explain why false beliefs are spreading, but true beliefs can be spreading all the same by the same mechanism. So in theory, we cannot tell from meme theory whether a certain belief is true or false. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, what about, uh, at a certain point, you mentioned that one of the things that memetics can explain well is the selection of stories. So, and there are different stories that are appreciated in different times. Could you give us an example of that? Yes, uh, it explains. It uh, depends on uh, people's worldview and people's understanding of the world and uh, what topics are uh, on the agenda in uh, in society in general. So some stories are selected and uh, propagated in certain times and other stories in other times. Um, a good example is uh, stories about sex because as uh, I told you, sex is an emotional button that uh, we pay attention to. So we like stories about sex and the mass media they profit from writing or telling about sex but the uh, morals of the time uh, is defining what kind of stories are permissible and what stories are not permissible mm -hmm. like a hundred years ago the, the puritan movements were dominating the public morals and that means you can you're not allowed to talk about sex unless you are warning about the dangers of sex Right, so uh, the media just want to uh, tell about sex. They're not allowed to write positive stories about sex, so they write negative stories about sex. But still, it's selling. It would still sell newspapers, and people would still listen to it. And uh, one good example is uh, one of the first novels about homosexuality. It's Death and Venice by Thomas Mann, and um, it talks about a man with homosexual fantasies and the man dies in the end because that uh, the moral convention of the time that the sinner should die in the end because that was the only that was the only excuse for writing about homosexuality so the author probably just uh, wanted to uh, uh, write about his own feelings and his own fantasies and put it into a novel and I think he had no intention about uh, warning against uh, these uh, dangerous thoughts, but that was the only possibility for writing about homosexuality at that time. And so he wrote a, a moral story about a man with homosexual fantasies who died in the end, because that was the only possibility he had for writing about the topic. And then the uh, 
50 years later, in the 1960s, 70s, we had sexual liberation, and certainly it was permissible to talk about the positive side of sex. And so the media were full of uh, praise about the pleasures of sex and described every possible variation they could uh, find, because that would give them an ex excuse for uh, writing about sex. And so we had this uh, sexual revolution with sexual liberation and all kinds of sexual variants, variants and every imaginable kind of sexuality got described and uh, got liberated. A lot of different sexual minorities got liberated. And now today, the pendulum, pendulum uh, has swung a little to the opposite side now. It's Me Too, Me Too that's dominating the agenda and suddenly uh, a lot of women come forward and remember things that happened uh, many years ago that by today's standard would be a sexual harassment and and then all the, all the media are full of that and it has consequences that high-ranking men are accused of something they did long ago and uh, they are uh, they lose their positions and and so now it's a different agenda but it's a selection of stories and the media that are uh, publishing these stories they have no agenda they have no may not have any intention to change society but the morals of the time are defining what kind of stories they are permitted to tell and this selection process is then amplifying any uh, tendencies in the society about what you can say and what you cannot say. So that's an example of selection of stories. So the one that do the selection, the mass media, may not have any intention of changing the society or the politics in any way, but that's in fact what they are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, what about witch hunts and moral panics? That's another topic and there are some interesting examples about that. A, a recent one, I think, is Canon or QA. Non. I mean, I'm not sure how you <laughs> pronounce yeah. the word, but yeah. uh, uh, what about that? Yes, that's also something you can think about as selection. Um, because a witch hunt, it's it's something uh, that is spreading uh, fear and danger, like the original witch hunts in the early modern times. People believe that they were uh, satanic uh, people that made uh, dangerous spells and were riding on broomsticks and kissing the devil and all kinds of weird things. But these stories were selected because they push our emotional buttons and also because uh, the church promoted the stories because they felt their, uh, their influence was uh, was declining. And so um, this kind of story was spreading and it has uh, huge consequences and what a lot of in, uh, innocent people were burned uh, on the fire, accused of being witches. And then the story started out because people found out it was not true and nobody was were riding on broomsticks. It was all false. But uh, these uh, moral panics, they come up from time to time and they have a huge impact on the political climate. Uh, for example, the stories came, about, came again in the 1980s. There was 
people believe there were uh, satanic cults who abused children sexually and physically and ate them or sacrificed them to the devils and so that was in the 1980s and uh, we like to think this as, <laughs> as a modern time where people are well informed but still uh, these kind of stories could uh, could circulate and uh, innocent people went to jail and children were separated from their children on these four charges. And now the same stories are uh, circulating, circulating, or very similar stories are circulating again by the mysterious movement QAnon. And when I first heard these stories that there were uh, satanic sects uh, which were pedophiles and abusing children and they were controlling the world and stuff like that, I immediately thought, oh, this is a strong meme. And uh, quite probably it's a constructed, it's uh, a constructed meme, a deliberately constructed to uh, to uh, push people's button and to be uh, be spread. Nobody knows who's behind this and maybe there are political agendas behind it, we don't know, but these are certainly uh, strong memes because they're pushing exactly all the most sensitive psychological buttons. And so these uh, stories can spread. And uh, these can have uh, huge uh, impacts on on the political uh, agenda. Also, um, uh, terrorism, it's also a quite a, kind of moral panic because we've had a terrorism for many years. But after 2001, suddenly it made the headlines of all the media and it's spreading like a panic and political uh, politicians are reacting to it and it um, makes the society more authoritarian and make people support authoritarian leaders. If you remember my first interview, I talked about how fear and danger can make people authoritarian and make them support a leader. And some uh, leaders are actually uh, using this and they're spreading fear and fabricating danger in order to make people support their leaders and maybe uh, push the, the political climate in a less democratic way. And sometimes these uh, panics or which ones are controlled by some, somebody and somebody sometimes it's just out of control that the media are going like self-amplifying self, um, stories and nobody is controlling it. But it certainly has a strong in impact on the political life and that's why I think it's important in the context of cultural selection that there is a selection process here that is driving the culture and the political climate in one way or another and sometimes nobody is actually controlling this Some, sometimes somebody is controlling it but quite often nobody is in control it just happens like people, uh, the things are, uh, are amplifying themselves and going out of control. Mm -hmm. So before we move on to the next topic, uh, let's uh, maybe close the topic of memetics. Uh, I mean, at the beginning or near the beginning, you said that there are some controversies, like, for example, discussions around what is the unit of selection in memetics or even in cultural evolution more generally. So, why would you say is uh, memetics out of fashion nowadays? Uh, 
Well, there was a journal of memetics and a lot of studies, and uh, it's like it died out, and this journal does not exist any, anymore. And I think the, uh, uh, the discussion has been derailed by endless discussions over what is the unit of selection, what is the, the meme, what is a meme, is it analogous to a gene, is it a, uh, a fixed unit, can it be divided, or is it a combination of units, and is is there a unit at all, and how is it transmitted? Is it like a gene that uh, depends on the birth and uh, and death of people, or uh, does it just uh, transmit to anybody? And and uh, is everything a meme, or is it, uh, like a religion? Is it one meme, or is it a combination of meme? And what about social structure, like democracy? Is democracy a meme, or it's not? It's uh, not cared by one person, by a whole society. It's still a meme. And all these discussions, they they're really focused on whether it's analogous to a gene, and whether we can make mathematical formulas for it. And and I think uh, these discussions are some somehow taking the focus away from the social uh, and cultural phenomena that it's supposed to describe. And I think it's more uh, interesting to focus on what is the criteria for making a, a meme selected, what is selected and uh, what is not selected, and looking at this selection process. I think that's a more fruitful way of, of seeing it and taking more into the realm of social studies and, and culture. And move it a little away from the mathematics of uh, genes that are reproduced. Mm -hmm. But there is no universal answer to what is a meme or what are the processes. But no, because no model fits all. No model fits all social phenomena. But uh, still, the process of selection, that is an important concept because it can explain how things are, are changing and why things are changing in ways that we maybe not, did not predict. Mm -hmm. uh, so to understand cultural evolution, there's also this set of uh, terms, concepts like meta adaptation, evolvability, vicarious selection. Could you explain them? Yes, uh, it's the idea that uh, cultural evolution somehow is an amplification of biological evolution like the capacity for culture, our uh, ability to learn from others and to uh, pass on uh, culture or memes. It is evolved by biological evolution because it allows us to adapt faster to a new environment. So we can say that the cultural selection is vicarious for the biological evolution, in the sense that it goes in approximately the same direction, it increases our chance of survival, and it's much more efficient, much faster, because it can be um, it can be uh, intelligent and goal directed, and so so it's faster, and it's kind of amplifying biological uh, selection, and this gives us humans a big advantage over animals 
because it allows us to adapt further and develop things that could uh, not have been developed by biological evolution. But we should uh, not be fooled by this but say, by saying that cultural evolution always goes in the same direction because there are cultural traits that are selected even though they are not increasing uh, biological fitness. A good example is celibacy, the religious uh, tradition of celibacy. A celibate uh, priest or monk or nun, they have no children, so they have no biological fitness. But still the tradition of celibacy is spreading because they have a cultural influence. A priest has a lot of cultural influence, so he can spread his ideas to his followers. And so the idea of celibacy can propagate and spread in society, even though it does not increase biological fitness. Mm -hmm. So the cultural evolution does not just replace biological evolution. To some degree, it does enhance biological evolution, but it does not necessarily go in exactly the same direction. Mm -hmm. What about understanding how science and the different branches of science evolve? I mean, how can we apply this knowledge to understand how that works and maybe uh, how certain fields that perhaps we could say are pseudo-scientific or even non-scientific uh, work? Yes, I think uh, this is a good example or a good application of cultural selection theory <coughs> because uh, scientific theories are also memes that can be selected. And um, the philosoph famous philosopher Karl Popper, uh, he invented the, uh, the what he called the principle of falsification. That is a criterion for uh, when something is science. A scientific theory has to be uh, testable. If you cannot test a theory, it's not scientific. So if I have a theory that A leads to B, and then somebody can make an experiment saying that A does not lead to B, then there's something wrong with my theory, and then I have to refine my theory, or somebody has to come up with a better theory. And this uh, principle, which is called the principle of falsification, is widely accepted now as a criterion for science. Now, if you want to make a science of culture, or science of uh, social structure, then uh, our social uh, world is so complex that you can find examples of anything. Because it's so complex, there are so many things happening and things interacting in so many different ways that you can find example of anything. So if I come up with some theory of something happening or some uh, causal effect in uh, in social systems, somebody else can uh, say, oh, it doesn't fit this example, your theory must be wrong. And this is actually a naive way of looking at the fortification theory or the fortification principle because you can reject any theory and then there's nothing left. So uh, what really happens in practice is that if you have a theory and then you have an observation that doesn't fit the theory, then you have to modify the theory and come up with some uh, extra additional hypothesis or something to make 
the theory still, still work. Until maybe somebody comes up with a better theory. But as long as you don't have a better theory, you don't, don't reject it because then you have nothing to work with, you modify the theory and try to improve it, unless somebody can come up with a better theory. <coughs> Sorry. But in the social, in social sciences, uh, there's so much resistance to the idea of cause and effect because they want to believe that uh, everything is controlled by, by people, intelligent people deciding how things should go and free will and stuff. And so whenever somebody comes up with a theory, then somebody else will come up with an example that doesn't fit the theory, and then the theory is rejected. And when all the uh, testable theories are rejected, what have we left? We have no, actually we have no science of uh, culture uh, or cultural science left. We only have like interpretations and categorizations and stuff like that. And so the social sciences have developed in a way that's less and less scientific because all the scientific theories, they can be fortified and they are fortified and then there's nothing left. And so if we have no uh, way of testing the theories, all we have left is theories that cannot be tested like interpretations or categories or uh, or uh, ideas of uh, how uh, what goes on in people's mind and things like that then uh, how do we choose the best theories if they cannot be tested and what I see is happening <clears throat> in a lot of the social studies is that when theories cannot be tested they are selected by different uh, irrelevant uh, criteria, most, uh, most often by prestige. If you can uh, cite some prestigious uh, French philosopher, then your theory is more, uh, more appreciated. And if you can express uh, your theory is in a very elaborate and ambiguous uh, language, like if you say something that's ambiguous, then it's difficult to disagree because everybody can interpreted to his or, her own, his or her own liking. And so also political correctness or ideology that the theories that people prefer are the ones that fit their ideology. And so uh, the, a lot of the cultural studies have evolved by this selection mechanism in a way that's less and less scientific. And I know a lot of the people you have interviewed have deplored this and uh, calling for a more scientific uh, science of, of culture. And um, fortunately, there are more and more people who are working in different directions, like uh, cultural evolution. More people are working on cultural evolution. And, and um, also there are big databases of cultural variables that people make statistics and make more scientific theories uh, out of that. So. There is a new movement uh, going in a more scientific direction, fortunately. But a lot of us who have worked with this for, for decades have been very frustrated that the sociologists wouldn't listen to us. Yeah. So what are some of the main differences between genes and memes? Um, yes. Uh, 
The most important uh, difference is that genes are selected by people uh, dying and or having children. So it's birth and death that controlling uh, the evolution of genes. This also happens uh, with memes, of course, if memes are tra transmitted from parent to child, but that is not the most main uh, mechanism. And people have been uh, like led astray by focusing on uh, people dying uh, or having more children because of the memes they have. And of course, that's an effect, but it's not the most important effect because a meme can be transmitted for, from any person to any other person. And with electronic media, I can transmit my means uh, to you. You are many kilometers away. And so uh, you don't have to die a new person uh, being born for a new meme to spread. So memes are spread m mainly by, uh, by communication and people learning from each other. So that's one uh, important uh, difference. Another difference is that cultural evolution is cumulative. We have more and more ideas. Like genes are competing with each other. For example, we can have genes for blue eyes or, or brown eyes. And so these genes are competing with each other. So if for some reason that blue eyes are more fit than brown eyes, because we see better or because the opposite sex finds them more attractive, then maybe the gene for blue eyes can uh, replace a gene from brown eyes in a certain population. So there's a competition between genes, but it's not so for, uh, for ideas. For example, somebody can invent a recipe for how to make blueprint, blue paint, and somebody else can make a recipe for brown paint. And these two recipes, they're not necessarily replacing each other because we can have both recipes and then we can have both blue paint and brown paint, and then we can make a better painting with more colors. So we can have more and more colors and we can accumulate more and more ideas or more and more recipes. And if we don't have enough capacity in our brain to remember all the recipes, then we can store them in books or on computers. So in principle, there's, there's no limit to how many ideas we can accumulate, how many recipes, how many inventions we can have. And we can store it all in a computer. And if we need a, a paint for a certain uh, Viet color, we can search on our computer and find the re right recipe. So cultural evolution is cumulative. It's accumulating more and more, more and more memes, more and more ideas, more and more uh, invention and so on. So that's another important uh, difference. Yeah. And, uh, also, um, the cultural units, it's not always a, a discrete uh, unit. There are a lot of things that cannot be expressed in, in uh, discrete units or units of information or uh, discrete ideas or something, but it can still be selected. And so maybe we can talk about uh, the things that are selected, but which we cannot express as memes. That can be quantitative, quantitative traits like money, for example, you can have more or less money. It's not a discrete thing, I don't have money, I don't have money. You can have more or less money. And you can have more or less power, resources like food and water and land and so. 
and also for example reputation or prestige. A person can have more or less reputation or prestige and all these things they give the person more influence and that's also a kind of selection because obviously there's a selection process going on. Some people have more, more money, some people have less money and the pe people with more money have more influence. That's also a kind of selection process and I think we need to focus on this also. People have not been focusing very much on this in terms of cultural selection, that selection is also working on these things that are not discrete units. Mm -hmm. I understand. Okay, so uh, you've already mentioned some examples of, uh, let's say, types of selection that cannot be expressed as memes. You mentioned money, for example. I mean, selection that is based on quantitative rather than qualitative traits. Are there any other good examples? Yeah, as, or, uh, money is the mo uh, most obvious example. Uh, we have something called the Mashu effect. It means that whoever's rich gets more rich. And uh, we are seeing that very strongly in, in the world today that uh, the rich are getting incredibly uh, rich today. And uh, a few people own as much as half of the poorest half of the world. So there's uh, an enormous in economic inequality. And this is because what's called the Mashu effect, that whoever has more money and more power can use their money and power to influence the system to get more money and more power. Like the most powerful people, they can um, lobby the politicians to make laws that benefit them so that can make still more money and get still more power. And so that's a Mashu effect and that's a, a very strong selection effect, which has a huge influence on how society works today. Mm -hmm. What about uh, the media? We've already touched on that a little bit here, but what happens in different types of media competing amongst themselves? Yes, that's also a very important uh, mechanism, I think, or it has a very important effect that few people have actually studied well. Um, most of the mass media today, they are commercial, they depend on money, mostly from advertisers and maybe also from subscribers. So they are controlled by economic market mechanisms. So the media we have today, they are a result of uh, the selection process of the economic markets. And um, for example, if you have no limit to how many TV stations you can have in a country, but there's a limit to, to how much money advertisers will put into TV ad, uh, advertisements, then what happens is if there are more TV stations sharing the same pie of advertising money, there's less money for each TV station. And then they are forced to make, uh, make poor, poor quality because that's the only way they can cut down on their expenses, that is uh, lowering the quality. So uh, we get uh, poor and poor quality of the news. And many people are, <laughs> are actually mad at the TV and say there's nothing good here, it's, it's all uh, <laughs> shit, but 
that's an economic uh, process. Nobody wants uh, a bad quality of a TV news, but that's what happens if you have unlimited economic competition. And they have less money for investigative journalism um, because it doesn't pay back. And there are less uh, debates about uh, complicated uh, political issues because people want to hear what they agree with. And so a debate with uh, people disagreeing is not very uh, economical profitable. And so uh, like economic uh, or political disagreements between different candidates, they are presented as a horse race. Like now this candidate is uh, leading the polls and now this and uh, uh, what they are doing to improve their ratings, but it's less about the issues. Uh, they don't go very deep into the issues and uh, the consequences of, of their policies. And also, if the media uh, tell a story that turns out to be false, um, they will not bring a disclaimer unless they have to, because a disclaimer is not profitable. When they are controlled by economic market forces, they will not, uh, if they have told a story and later realize the story was false, they will not tell a story, uh, sorry, we were wrong, here's the right story. Like, uh, somebody is accused of a, pro of a crime, uh, a serious crime, a murder or something, and they tell a lot about this person, and it later turns out this person was innocent, then they will not talk about, uh, much about the rather uh, forget it and talk about something else, and then uh, they will harm this innocent person, uh, because that's how uh, economic uh, competition works. And if some, quite often uh, some newspaper or TV stations say, we want to do better, we want to make serious, um, journalism and investigating journalism and uh, uh, debate about complicated matters. But as long as, the, as they depend on, uh, on money, they simply go out of business because it's less profitable than the one that are just make sensational celebrity scandal and talk about sex and violence all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, does this interfere in any way with democracy? Yes, very much so. Because uh, people are uh, shaped by the information they receive from the media. Um, if you talk about the theory of social cognition or schematic thinking, the way we are uh, digesting the news, we think in terms of uh, schemas or certain uh, uh, formulas for for how the world looks because we are receiving so much um, information there's an information overload we are receiving so much information that we cannot digest it all so we use we are economizing our mental uh, capability by putting things into categories and for example if uh, somebody is talking about politics we try to categorize this, uh, this person as conservative or liberal or socialist. And then if you put this person into this category, it's easier to understand. Like we know uh, 
approximately what this person is going to say, and if he or she says something different, we may ignore it because it doesn't fit into the category we have, we have put this person into. And if you meet a person who doesn't fit into any of these categories that we have already in our mind, then um, what most people will do, they will still try to fit the category that fits best to this person. And then we, that means they will misunderstand what this person is saying. Or if you hear a story about something uh, new that we haven't heard about before, some event that's quite new and we have heard, not heard about it before, like either we will try to put it into the schema that fits best. That's the schema we always already have in our minds. Find a schema that fits best and then try to interpret it. And if this schema doesn't fit very well, we will misunderstand what's happening. Or quite often people will still will simply uh, ignore the story saying, this is not interesting to me. I don't understand it. I don't want to listen to it. And so the schemas we have in our mind are very much uh, shaping the political life and our understanding of the world. And the media are shaping the schemas we have in our mind. So if you have listened to a particular TV station for many years, we have like adapted our mind to the schemas that are dominant in this TV station or the format, the news formats, we have uh, adjusted to that. And so if you listen to a very different TV station, we don't like it because it doesn't fit our schemas. We have difficulties understanding it. It requires more brain capacity to digest what it's saying. So most people just switch back to what they're used to. And so even if the TV station is uh, producing a poor quality of news, when people get, uh, get used to it, they get adapted to it, and then they will like what they're used to. And so it's actually dumbing down the population. And uh, as I said, they don't, uh, they will not present a diversity of viewpoints. They will bring whatever uh, people like to hear. So people are confirmed by hearing the kind of news they like to hear. And also on the social media, people can uh, follow the, a particular news group on Facebook or whatever that uh, fit their ideas or their interest, and then somebody else can have uh, follow a different group. And so we have echo chambers building up that uh, one part of the population have one uh, kind of opinions and one kind of uh, schemas in their mind, and another population has something else. And then we have uh, disagreement and they cannot agree. A lot of political disagreement is caused by people having different schemas in their head. So they don't understand or don't understand the world, world in the same way and they don't understand each other arguments very well. So it has a lot of influence on the political life. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned democracy. Uh, the democratic process, it assumes that the voters are well informed, that they are informed about the different candidates and their, uh, and their ideologies and their policies, but if you don't have any reliable media that's giving, that's informing, actually informing uh, the public and the voters, then the de democratic process is not working very well. Mm -hmm. I understand. Uh, I mean, you mentioned money when we 
came into this section of the interview. Um, are there any good examples of where money rules? I mean, for example, politics, culture, and stuff like that. Yes, money makes the world go around. It's everywhere. So the media was one example. The media are controlled by uh, controlled by market forces, or at least the commercial media. There are not many non-commercial media left because, because <laughs> how can they survive without money? And so, um, yeah, also, um, well, every kind of cultural event, like a, a concert or a, a, a football match or whatever, it's all paid by sponsors. And so the, the sponsors, can decide what kind of events can take place and what kind of event can event cannot take place, and the sponsors sometimes can even uh, um, uh, even dictate the rules of the game because, um, like, it's more exciting for the viewers if you change the rules like this and this. So cultural events and sports events, they are very much influenced by economic market forces. So the sponsors have no agenda on. Uh, world like this or that kind of music or this or that kind of sport, but it's all controlled by market forces. And the same with websites. Many websites today are financed by advertisements. Uh, we even have uh, seen fake news websites. <clears throat> they are producing all kinds of sensational news, and the only purpose is to uh, make clickbait, make people uh, click on the stories and read them, and the stories are just made up, they're completely false, but still they can make money from, on the advertisement by making some uh, outlandish claims about what's happening, and and they can attract money. And uh, science also, um, science is supposed to be, be neutral, like uh, we rely on uh, we rely on universities for producing truth, but uh, the universities are also uh, uh, cut down their fi finances or the support from the governments, and so they have to find uh, sponsors who are uh, willing to pay for pay them to do research, and so the sponsors are defining what you can do research in, and uh, so there'll be a lot, uh, most research in the, in the areas that the sponsors want. It could be an industry, a medical industry, they want uh, research in a certain disease or something, and um, they can even make, uh, ask this, uh, the university to evaluate if their product is good or bad, and if the science if the university finds out their product is not as good as they thought, then the sponsor uh, will try to say, uh, please don't uh, publish this finding. Maybe they even have it in their contract that they can decide whether, whether the, the results should be published or not. So this is certainly influencing uh, science. And so universities are no longer independent uh, guarantees of the truth.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that money rules the world. So is there any way that we can say that economic mechanisms control our global society and in what instances does it manifest? Yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, I would like to start with the money system itself. This is an issue that has uh, come up after the the financial crisis in 2001. It has been an issue for a long time, but it's gone into public discussion after that. The way uh, the the money system works fundamentally, like we like to think of money as uh, notes and coins, but most of the money that's circulating today, it's uh, electronic money that are made by banks, and most of the money that circulating comes from um, credit. Uh, if you loan money from the bank, the bank is actually uh, creating electronic money. And when your loan has to be paid back with interests, then uh, there's something missing in the system. The, uh, the loan itself was created just by pressing a number in a computer. But if you have to pay back the interest, where should the interest come from? And so today we are in a situation where there's three times as much debt in the world as the money in circulation. It sounds absurd, but all this debt, it comes from the compound interest of the loans that have been uh, given because money can lend out more money than it have, or banks can lend out more money than it, than it have. It's quite a big issue. If you search for money creation, you can find a lot about it. I don't think we have uh, time to go into details, but if you search for money creation, you can find a lot about it. But the consequences of this are big, big. When there's more debt in the world than there's money, then it's almost impossible to pay back all debt. That means somebody has to go bankrupt. That people who lose their job, they, uh, they become destitute. It's, they may not have done anything wrong or irresponsible, but it's a mathematical consequence of the money system. that somebody have to go bankrupt. It can be individual persons and families. It can be uh, companies going bankrupt, and it can even be countries. So uh, state bankruptcy is something we have seen many times in history, that a whole state can go bankrupt. And today, there are a lot of poor countries that are effectively bankrupt. They are more debt than they have money. And this debt makes it possible to control them. Um, much of the debt is uh, owed to the World Bank and the International Monetary, Frank, uh, International Monetary Fund and uh, big international banks. And so, these organizations can say, uh, oh, you cannot pay back your debt. Uh, we will be kind to you and write down some of your debt on the condition that uh, we control your policies. You have to uh, adjust your economic policies. You may have to liberalize. You have to sell out your national assets uh, and 
you have to open up for international inv uh, investments. And so uh, international foreign investors can uh, buy up land, they can uh, start mining projects, and uh, or they can uh, get oil and all kinds of resources from this country. And this is actually a kind of economic warfare. If you search for economic hitman, you can find more about it. There, uh, there are some whistleblowers who have uh, uh, who have inside information telling about this actually a kind of economic warfare. That some of the countries that have most valuable resources, especially oil, they are put into debt by uh, giving them loans that they cannot pay back, and then we get this. Uh, structural adjustments that allows uh, outside investments to explore the explore the resources of this country. And it's actually influencing a lot of countries like uh, Africa. Africa has a lot of resources, but they're still among the poorest countries in the world. And it's not because they're, they don't have any resources. They could be rich, but we are actually, we from the rich countries are actually exploiting them and taking much more money out of them than we give in development aid. So these are economic uh, mechanisms that have a lot of influence on the whole situation in the world, the political situation, and also on democracy. The countries that are exploited or the countries that have many resources, they have less democracy because there's also always conflict about these resources. This is called the, the resource curse or the oil curse that countries that are rich in resources, they have a lot of conflict because everybody wants to fight over these resources and that is destroying the prospect of, of democracy. Mm -hmm. Is anyone in control of all of these? I mean, the, of course, there are some conspiracy theories out there about sometimes secret societies that supposedly control the world, but I mean, does, does any of that really make sense? Um, well, I like to think that <laughs> so nobody's in control. People want to think that somebody is controlled, somebody must be manipulating, pulling the strings on top. But if you follow the money and say, uh, we, most of people, uh, are in debt, most uh, countries are in debt, most companies are in debt. In debt to whom? Uh, in debt to big banks uh, or big investors. And now who's owning the banks? They own by other banks. And so you want to follow the, the pyramid and say who's on top? And there's a famous Swiss study uh, uh, trying to trace who's on top. and it turns out that the top banks are owning each other. Like if bank A, bank A is owning bank B, bank B is owning bank C, and B, bank C is owning bank A. Or oh, they are not owning, they have shares in each other. So there's this cycle that the big banks have shares in each other. So actually nobody is controlled. <laughs> they are just owning each other. And it likes, nobody has the responsibility and we cannot say there's uh, some uh, king or on the top who's controlling everything. It's like nobody's control. Like 
many of the big in investors, they are pension funds and uh, the like, and they may be legally required to uh, maximize the returns on their investments. And so it's all economic mechanisms and nobody's actually, nobody's really um, responsible. And we are seeing like a financial crisis like, or, or the many financial crises that you have seen um, throughout history. Uh, they are also driven by what's called financialization. That means we have a lot of uh, financial instruments, uh, complicated uh, derivatives and financial instruments that nobody understands. And so these instruments are, are uh, linked to other instruments, to other instruments, and there's a long way from the investor to the real world uh, asset that's actually at the end of the chain. So for example, an investor uh, in Finland who's buying shares may be causing a, a farmer in India to go bankrupt. And he has no idea because there's a long chain of impersonal uh, papers and instruments in between, in between. So nobody is actually uh, know the consequences of what they're doing. So in many respects, you can say nobody is in control. And so that's why I uh, think we need to uh, look at this from a selection point of view. Things are happening. So the biological evolution is actually, in some respect, a, a good parallel because things are happening without anybody really in control. Mm -hmm. And uh, nobody is really in control, but uh, is cultural evolution in any way intelligent? I mean, is it the result of some intelligent decision making or not? Uh, yes, very often it is. And uh, social scientists want to, uh, want to explain things by uh, somebody is controlling things. But not all, not always, and uh, even if people are intelligent, the intelligent decision making by a million individuals can have unintended consequences on a big scene. And so, cultural evolution is intelligent in some ways and unintelligent in some ways. Uh, you may see it as a headless monster controlling the world. <laughs> That's a, a, an image I like to see. Like it's a headless monster. This automatic automatic mechanisms and anonymous market forces and selection processes driving our society and nobody's really in control and nobody knows which way it's taking us. We're controlled by a headless monster. Of course, not everything is just chaos, but a lot of things are happening without anybody actually planning it to happen. And it can make go in a good direction or bad direction, and nobody is actually able to predict what's happening. And that's why I think we need this kind of series that look at automatic processes happening, like selection processes just happening because it, it happens to happen. Yeah. So in our first interview, we talked about what distinguishes warlike from peaceful societies and we mentioned uh, two of the terms that you use in your book like regal and kunjic societies uh, so I, I, I mean 
uh, how can we use those concepts to explain uh, varying levels of conflict between different societies, different countries, and so on? Yes, maybe I should shortly uh, recap this uh, regality theory. Mm -hmm. It is that uh, if uh, people experience uh, war or collective danger, or even if it's just uh, perceived danger, they will become more authoritarian, more likely to support a strong leader. Yeah. So it's very much determined by the environment. If you are living in dangerous environment where you may be, there may be a, a neighbor uh, country attacking you, or you fear that there may be a war or terrorism or whatever, then the society will be more regal, and that means people will be more authoritarian, they want strong leader, they want strict uh, discipline. While uh, if you are feeling safe, that there's peace everywhere and everybody is safe, then uh, the people's psychology will drive, uh, drive the evolution in the opposite direction, and be more tolerant and egalitarian and peaceful. And uh, this is derived from evolutionary psychology, which I explained in the first interview. Mm -hmm. And it has important consequences for, uh, for how society develops even today. And like we talked about uh, witch hunts and moral panics, they may happen for no reason, but it has an effect because uh, it makes people scared of uh, witches or uh, devils or child abusers or whatever, and uh, the danger may be real or uh, fictitious or something in between, but it still uh, affects the the political climate and make uh, the society develop in one way or another. So the more conflict you have, the more danger you have, the less democratic will the country be because people support a strong leader, and so the culture or the political climate can uh, develop in a less democratic direction. And we are seeing this still today sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess that, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the way you explain how different societies evolve in a regal or kanjic direction is because of the environments they are located in. So uh, what happened when things like uh, agriculture uh, started developing? Um, yes. Um, the more uh, regal a country is or a culture is, that is, uh, the more people uh, fear of danger or war. They will be more uh, hierarchical and more warlike and more disciplined, and this allows the uh, the society to wage war and conquer territory from others, because. The stronger they get, the more authoritarian, the more strong the leader at the top, the more likely they are to uh, conquer other uh, neighbor territories. And then the society grows bigger, 
and that means there are more people, they can make a bigger army, and they can have more resources for developing more efficient weapons. And also they are likely to sooner or later develop agriculture or some more efficient uh, way of food production. And this allows them to feed more people and uh, makes uh, still bigger armies because they can feed more people and develop more complex societies. And so the history has been a development from uh, tribes to small villages and uh, city-states and then states and kingdoms and finally big empires. Mm-hmm. And I told about this in the in the first interview when the empire goes too big to manage, uh, it crumbles and it cannot, um, uh, people don't care about what happens on a faraway border and so the regal psychology is uh, disappearing and also the, the elite on the on the top is growing and you're spending more money and they uh, go bankrupt or fight each other within the elite and it all falls apart and that explains the rise and fall of empires. So that's the evolution we have seen uh, throughout thousands of years. Yeah, uh, and uh, you talk about different kinds of competition, like contest competition versus scramble competition. What's the difference between them? And perhaps could you give us some examples of that? Yes, that's a, uh, uh, that's a, a concept from biology and ecology. Uh, contest competition is when food or resources are concentrated in a small patches that uh, the animals can fight over. While scramble competition is when uh, food sources are uh, spread over a big area so whoever finds a piece of food first will get it. Uh, we can see it in uh, chimpanzees. We have, two, uh, we have the main, uh, we have a normal chimpanzee, and then we have a uh, bonobo, which is uh, an almost identical chimpanzee, but they are living in different parts of Africa. And the chimpanzee, they live in an area where food is concentrated so they can fight over it. That is contest competition, and then they become more violent. While the bonobo, they live in in an other area where food is uh, more distributed, so they cannot fight over food. Nobody can monop- monopolize a patch of food, and then go. They have developed in a more peaceful direction, and the chimpanzees are actually fighting wars against each other, and killing neighbors, while killing uh, males from the uh, neighbor uh, tribes or neighbor uh, groups. And so we can see the same in uh, in humans, that um, if we have contest competition, that is, we have some valuable resource, resource that is concentrated and you can fight over it. Uh, most importantly, for example, oil, the oil-rich countries, everybody is trying to get hold of the oil wells and monop- monopolize them, and there's a lot of conflict, and there's a lot of war. While um, 
in other countries where the resources are more evenly distributed, they are more peaceful. Uh, Christian Welsel um, called it a cool water condition. That is, for example, in Northern Europe, we have a regular rainfall, and so everybody can grow their own food, and um, we ca you cannot monopolize the food because everybody can grow food, while uh, in other countries where you depend on the rivers and you have irrigation, the irrigation system can be centrally controlled and monopolized, and so they have contest competition. So that's why in uh, Northern Europe and some other parts of the world, we develop in more peaceful direction and more democracy. So that's, uh, that's one way of seeing that how the, how the environment is actually, is actually influencing society in ways that we may not always understand. Mm -hmm. So we've already mentioned religion here in this interview several times. Um, how can we understand the evolution of different types of religion in uh, religions in different societies? Like, for example, animism, polytheism, monotheism, and things like that. Yes, uh, the oldest hunter-gatherer societies that we know about. They had some kind of animism that they were uh, worshipping um, uh, spirits of their ancestors. And then as uh, the evolution grew towards bigger societies and agriculture, uh, some of the spirits got a higher status and became, became gods. And so we have polytheism. And uh, finally, the uh, the biggest societies, they finally developed monotheism, like there was one su supreme god all over all the other ones, and this actually reflects the evolution of the society and the political system also becoming more hierarchical. So the religion somehow reflects and justifies the political system. The evolution of religion is very slow, but it somehow reflects the uh, reflects the uh, political evolution. And uh, rulers like kings, they can use religion to justify uh, their power by saying they are allied with a god or they even have the status of a god. So the religions are actually also evolving in a kind of cultural selection. Mm -hmm. Very well. Okay, uh, another question about cultural evolution that we haven't tackled yet. Is, is cultural evolution in any way linear? Because when I guess that when people think about evolution, uh, biological or cultural, uh, many times they think that it is linear, that it can only go in a given direction, that it is sort of teleological because it has some purpose and has a goal to reach, let's say is goal directed. Uh, is that uh, true in any way? Um, yeah, sometimes it's true, but it's also misleading. In the beginning, when people talked about cultural evolution, they were seeing evolution as a ladder, that the less developed countries were at the bottom of the ladder and the rich developed countries were on the top. 
and uh, the poor consoles were supposed to climb the ladder and using us at the top as a model and going in this direction. And this is, a core, of course, a gross simplification because there is no well-defined direction for evolution. So this has led to many misunderstandings of what cultural evolution is because it's like ethnocentric to think that we at the top uh, define the end of uh, evolution and everybody should copy us. That's, a, <laughs> of course, uh, uh, not a very <laughs> nice way of thinking of ourselves. But uh, to some extent, things are really developing in parallel. If you look at the statistics, like the economy, the technology, the democratic institutions are developing in parallel or have done so for, his, uh, for recent history. And along with secularization and liberalism, democracy. So things have actually been moving in parallel for, for many years, but not always. There's no, it's no, not a, a law of nature that has to go in parallel. And in recent years, we have seen that uh, democracy is going the opposite way. Many countries in the world have become less democratic in, in recent years, while the economy is going, uh, going upwards, democracy is going downwards. So it does not always go in parallel. And uh, it's uh, quite likely that the reason why, why democracy is going down is because, as uh, my theory of galities says, that people feel more scared, there's more um, scaremongering in the mass media. A lot of talk about terrorism. Actually, uh, there were a lot of terrorism before 9-11, but people, uh, media focus more on it uh, today, and, there's, and politi politicians use it to scare people and, and to support them when they use these scare tactics. Uh, so it may also be an economic crisis, and other kind of uh, scare stories in the media that may people, people um, support a more authoritarian and less democratic rule. So it's not always linear. And as we know, the economy may go in cycles. Economists all often talk about economy going cycles and a different series of that. We don't have time to go into that, but it's not always linear. It can go in cycles. And as a we talked about empires going cycles. A cycle may, may take uh, hundreds or even thousands of years for an empire to go and fall and and finally disappear. So, so uh, but, uh, but it's not all linear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and when empires go in cycles, for example, uh, is, is there a particular sequence? that they follow? For example, is there uh, a period where they are more democratic and then there's some sort of competition that breaks out between elites and then we have revolution and then we have another sort of system, put, political system put in place? Yes. An empire, it's like an emperor is, <laughs> by definition, uh, a dictator. Empires, they 
become more and more regal, more and more authoritarian and uh, hierarchical. And so they really become democratic, except perhaps at the top when they stop growing and uh, the regal uh, mechanisms are, are no longer active, they may develop in a more democratic way. And like that happens before they they fall apart. Or empires may go in many cycles before they finally completely uh, disappear. Yeah. Uh, do we have what we could call empires nowadays? Like, for example, people talk a lot about USA, China, Russia. Can we in any way consider them to be empires or at least economic empires? Um, in, a, in a way, yes. People talk a lot about imperialism today and neocolonialism and stuff like that. So yeah. in some respects, like USA is an empire. And we may discuss whether Europe and, uh, and uh, Australia are part of the empire or, or not. And so, but they have influence over most of the world, even though they don't own uh, the whole world. They have influence everywhere and they have military bases everywhere. And so in some way, it's an empire. And they're certainly spreading their culture all over the world. And they are exploiting other countries for uh, for their wealth, their resources. And so is Europe and Australia and Canada and so on. So it's some kind of uh, economic imperialism and uh, and cultural imperialism. And then the, yes, China and Russia, they are competing and they also want to be superpowers and and have been or are still some uh, more or less superpowers and they are competing with each other for dominance and especially for access to resources. So, uh, so uh, this is a mechanism that uh, has a lot of influence all over the world and uh, after the Cold War or the, after the Second World War they are, the empires are really um, fighting each other directly because that's too expensive. <laughs> Nobody will Nobody would win a nuclear war, as we say. But uh, they are still fighting what you could call proxy wars. Like when there's a, some Middle East country with a lot of oil, and USA and Russia and China all want influence, they are so each supporting different factions within this country. And so, uh, for example, Taliban in... in um, Afghanistan or Islamic State in the Middle East, they have at some times received uh, clandestine support from uh, one superpower or another, and then they have risen, and the conflict level is increasing due to support from the different stakeholders and different superpowers or wannabe superpowers and influencing. And this has caused a lot of conflict and, and what we can call proxy wars especially in oil countries and oil rich, and uh, resource rich countries. So that explains a lot of the, the conflict and war in the Middle East and especially the, the lack of democracy. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, uh, so I have a couple of final questions to ask you about cultural evolution, again, more generally, just for us to tackle really some of the big issues in the field, let's say. So you say that cultural evolution, the term is sort of an analogy in this case to biological evolution, but it is also a misleading one. I mean, that by saying or using the term cultural evolution, sometimes we might get some wrong ideas about how culture really evolves. Could you explain that? Yes. Um, so the study of cultural evolution and memes and so on, it has often con uh, concentrated too much on uh, biology and finding analogies and making mathematical models and stuff like that. And that has actually derailed the, the attention from what I think is more important that that studying selection processes that are going on in the real world and which can explain things. But one, uh, in one um, aspect, the analogy is quite a good one. That is biological evolution occurs for no reason. Nobody is uh, deciding which way it should go. It goes automatically because uh, some organisms are surviving and surviving and getting more offspring than others. And there are a lot of things in in uh, cultural evolution or the way our society changes that are also selection processes that, as we have discussed, really nobody is controlled. A lot of things are happening without plans. It's uh, it's uh, unintended consequences of things. We may have intelligent decision making, but there are a lot of unintended consequences that you may not have predicted. And is a lot of things are happening because of these unintended consequences and selection processes that we are not really in control of. Economic market mechanisms that are somehow driving us places that we don't want to. And so I think this uh, kind of analogy can explain a lot of things that are happening with nobody, nobody controlling it, except this headless monster that, <laughs> that is alive, has no will, but just goes in random directions. So a lot of people want to think that we are in control, that somebody is making intelligent decisions, and indeed they are, and fortunately a lot of things are happening for good reasons, because people make good decisions, but there are also a lot of things that cannot be explained by just good people making good decisions or good inventions. So there's a lot of study that needs to be done on focusing on these things that happen without any plan because of some kind of selection process that we are not really in control of. So uh, just one last question. You mentioned the fact that cultural evolution is not always as rational and planned as we would like to believe. So do you think that by studying more how culture evolves and how culture changes, maybe somewhere in the future we could do some sort of social engineering to uh, lead culture in a particular direction that we like more? Um, yes, and that's happening all the time. Politicians are making decision, decisions, and sometimes they're making decisions based on 
what scientists or econom economists uh, say. And if you have better theories, we may be able to make better, uh, better decisions. So it will happen whether we like it or not. But uh, me personally, I would like to focus on science, not ideology. So I don't like people mixing science and ideology. But if you have a scientific uh, theories, then people can make decisions based on these theories. Like <clears throat> um, the difference between the, uh, <laughs> this way of thinking and the more traditional way of thinking about sociology, we can illustrate it to the Second World War. Uh, many people trying to, uh, uh, to find out or asking why did the Second World War happen, and a lot of people have uh, tried to study the psychology of Adolf Hitler and say it happened because Hitler uh, wanted to make war. And so that's I'm to focus on the psychology of Hitler. Mm -hmm. But my take on it is that I think every country has a potential Hitler. The, uh, the crucial question is not why was Hitler uh, warlike, why did he want to make war, but more it's more important why did people support him, why did people vote for him. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we have to st uh, study this uh, kind of selection processes rather to look and to look at uh, the proximate causes of one person making a bad decision or being egoistic or something. Look at the more uh, deeper mechanisms and for example the role of the mass media as we have talked about. The mass media are controlled by market forces and then the media again is controlling our our mind and the political climate. And so we need to uh, combine e economy and media theory and media effects psychology and how this influences uh, the political climate. So there's a long chain of uh, causality that very few people have actually uh, tried to put together. So I think that's the kind of uh, research that we really need more and more. more. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's end on that note, Dr. Fogg. Uh, before we go, like last time, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, yes, my my theory and my uh, my latest book, Warlike and Peaceful Society, uh, there's a website, regality.info, where people can find my book and there's a discussion forum and links to other theories. And so I think that's, that's uh, a good starting point. Okay, great. So I will include all of that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Fogg, again, as I said at the beginning, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show and to talk to you. Yes, and it was a pleasure to me. And thank you for all your work. You have interviewed many, uh, many clever and interesting people. And I really like your, your show. So thank you very much. Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with top academics and scholars from a variety of fields. 
So to keep this channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you prefer PayPal, I also have links to that in the description box of the video. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please leave a like, share it and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett Perga Larsen. Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Ruth Gervoz, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zoop, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Yevan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, and Yannick Punter, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rujewski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.